thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. Good evening and welcome. Now we are in the middle of studying the liturgy of the temple. We've looked at um, the first four uh, important feasts, Passover, Unleavened Bread, First Fruits, and Weeks. And tonight we're going to focus on the three remaining feasts, the Feasts of Trumpets, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot, or the Feast of Tabernacle. Um, the reason why we're doing, we're focusing on those feasts is because of their important, importance liturgically and especially because of all the symbols that we are going to find in the book of Revelation and also in scripture. Uh, most, many of those images or ideas are prevalent throughout scripture and I'll show you some tonight um, when we talk about the, the Feast of Tabernacle. Let's talk first about the Feast of Trumpets. Um, which also is known, which has become known also as Rosh Hashanah, and that means the head of the year. And it occurs on uh, the first of Tishri in the calendar, so it's in the September-October period time frame. Um, it is also known as the Memorial of Blowing of Trumpets. So initially it was known as the Feast of Trumpets, not so much as the Feast of the head of the year. Its liturgical aspect has is rooted with trumpets. And you know by now the importance of trumpets in the book of Revelation because there's a whole section of the book that deals specifically with the blowing of trumpets. Now trumpets are prevalent in the liturgy of the temple. They occur on multiple occasions, multiple times, in multiple places. And in this specific instance, um, this feast is focused on the, the trumpets. Why the trumpets? Because the Lord told them that when you blow the trumpet, I will remember the covenant that I have with you. So the trumpet is used as a covenant remembrance. Therefore, the trumpet is one way through which Israel and God, so to speak, are brought back to that time when the covenant has been established and ratified on Mount Sinai. That's why this feast is important for, for them. Um, the other interesting aspect of the Feast of Trumpet is that it's not only known as the head of the year, but it's also known as Yom Hadin, or the Day of Judgment. So it is associated with the notion that judgment 
occurs on that day. Um, <clears throat> the Feast of Trumpets is a one-day celebration, and it corresponds to the new moon. And Israel was commanded to blow the trumpets on that day and to keep the day as a Sabbath of rest. The interesting thing about it is that because it's a new moon, it meant that that was a celebration that occurred in darkness. The moon is not full. There's very little, little light that the moon produces during the night. Hence, it's a night of darkness. And, and many, many times the prophets will speak of the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, a dark day. Or a dark night. And it is in relation to that specific feast. That's why they looked at it as a dark night. Because the, it was a, a new moon. It was, of course, a day of rest or a day of Sabbath. So the Sabbath is not simply every Saturday. It is every Saturday, but it is also feast days. From, when, from whence we, within the church, got the notion of Holy Days of Obligation. Every Sunday is a Holy Day of Obligation, but there are also, or at least there used to be, and, and in the Maronite right in the United States is still the case, that we have also Holy Days of Obligation. The last one, the most recent one, being the Holy Thursday. The Thursday of the Ascension, I mean, which was, which is for us a Holy Day of Obligation. So the Sabbath isn't just the Saturdays, but also the days of obligation, so to speak, where a feast will occur and the Jews are not supposed to work. And till today, uh, observant Jews will actually not work. Will do nothing. They will sit all day long. They will not prepare food. They will not switch on the electricity. They will not use elevators. They will, they will have people doing all that for them. And I recall once in a conference, we had an observant Jew who on a, don't remember which feast it was, he actually went and sat in the room all day. He did not participate. The offering consisted of a young bull, a ram, and seven lambs. A kid goat was also sacrificed as a sin offering. These were in addition to the required daily sacrifices. So in the temple, on any given day, outside in the court of the priests, where you had the altar of sacrifices, you had officiating priests working there, and they would actually walk barefoot. They would walk barefoot on this um, on the step that surrounded the altar, and that step was full of salt to prevent them from slipping. And you cannot, you have to kind of imagine what it was like, where you had these pillars standing next to them on which the animals would be attached. Then the animals would be sacrificed. They would move to a table where they would be skinned, cut, washed, prepared, moved to the altar burned on the altar. If it was a whole burnt offering, the whole thing needed to be burned. If it wasn't, it was partially cooked, I mean cooked, and then it was eaten. Some would be eaten only by the priest, others eaten by the priest, and those who made the offering. Think about this whole operation as part of the temple and compare it to the liturgy that we have today. Okay? It's, it's, it's a good thing for us to constantly remind ourselves what, what the Lord has done for us, what he has freed us from. Because if he didn't die on the cross, guess what we'd be doing today? Bulls and goats and sheep and rams and that's what we'd be doing. And Father Nabil would be officiating barefoot.
Think about that. It is Ezra uh, mentions in his book that the second temple was built during that feast, the Feast of Trumpets, when they started rebuilding the temple. Now, a quick word about the trumpets. There were really two kinds of trumpets. There was the um, metal trumpet, and then there was the trumpet made out of the horns of ram, called the shofar. And it is that particular trumpet that is used in that feast. It's the one made out of the horns of ram. Horns, as you know, play a major role, and they always represent power. And it is therefore a representation of God's power that we are using to blow through that trumpet to remind God of his covenant. It is interesting that in Scripture there are two instances where the shofar, the trumpet, is blown not by humans. And let's take a quick look at this, because again, it plays a role in the book of Revelation where we have angels blowing trumpets. So we see that in, in the book of Exodus, chapter 19, verse 18 through 20. So that's the first, uh, the first place where we find this mentioned. So in, in Exodus 19, 18 through 20, we read... On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. And Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. And the Lord God came down upon Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. That's the first occurrence of, the, of, the, of that trumpet, and you see that the trumpet is not being blown by a human being. But it is the trumpet that signals God's presence, and that's what the Feast of the Trumpet will remind Israel of. And remember that in the first temple, the temple of Solomon, the Shekinah, the glory cloud, was present in the temple. Now, under what, with the temple built by the Lord, the temple built uh, by, by, I mean, Herod, during our Lord's time on earth, the, the Holy of Holy was completely empty. There was nothing there. But on the first temple, the Shekinah glory, the, the Holy Spirit presence manifested as a cloud was in the temple. So when they, when they blew the trumpet, it brought them back to Sinai, to the time when God came down and spoke to Moses, and they heard that trumpet being blown. The other place where we hear that trumpet is also in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 14. We'll have to come back to Zechariah a little bit later, uh, today, hopefully, but uh, let's just take a quick look at uh, chapter 9. So we hear in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 14, And the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the slingers, and they shall drink their blood like wine, and, and, and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. Now you notice the, again this is this is um, this is war language wrapped in liturgical sacrificial language. So they're they're 
the, the war language is wrapped in a sacrificial language of the temple because first the temple is, is blown, then the Lord of hosts protect them and they shall devour and tread down the slingers, which typically when the animals are killed, they are, they are eaten, and they shall drink their blood like wine and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. What does it mean to say that they're drenched like the corners of the altar? The corners of the altar had the four horns, and every time a sacrifice, an animal was sacrificed, the priest would take the blood of the animal that was collected in, in, a, um, in a cup or in a bowl and would go around and would sprinkle the corners, the four horns of the altar. So as that happened throughout the day, the horns were covered with blood. And in fact, there was a very sophisticated drainage system that would get the blood to go down in the valley of Kedron and the rest of the blood was thrown under the altar. Okay? So the imagery drenched like the corners of the altar come, come, bring us straight back to the sacrificial, liturgical uh, use of the altar in the temple. But he, the point is then, again, God is blowing the trumpet, and the, the trumpet blown is a, a reminder of the covenant, it is a reminder of God's presence, it is a reminder of God's presence as he is exercising that covenant. And you notice what we saw in, in, the, in, in Exodus, there is lightning, there is thunder, there is smoke. All those elements, all of them will reappear in the book of Revelation. Right? When the trump trumpets are being used. In Jewish tradition, the ten days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the two high holy days of Judaism, is called the days of awe. And Jewish tradition holds that during these ten days, divine judgment is rendered to determine whether a person shall live or die in the coming year. And I think I mentioned that to you last time. I think we spoke about that. Those ten days are important because in the book of Revelation, there is a passage where Christ tells the church, you will have to suffer for ten days. And many commentators wonder where those ten days are coming from. Some who take it literally means that they suffered for exactly ten days. And we're left to wonder why. But when you understand liturgically, you know that these are the ten days of awe during which the fate of all the Jews are determined. At the beginning of the year, three books are opened. The book of life, the book of life containing the names of the righteous, the book of life containing the names of the unrighteous, and the book of life containing the names who are in between. And that the fate of those in between is determined during those ten days of awe. That was the understanding of the belief, the Jewish belief at the time. So when John will say in, his, in the book of Revelation, and the books were opened, immediately what comes to mind are the books of life and the ten days of all. Okay? So that's kind of important to, to realize. So this is, this is what I quoted to you comes from Revelation, what I, what I just mentioned or alluded to is Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. All right? Now, the, the notion of crown, the idea of crown, is very important to us because crowns are associated with the end of those three feasts. Because the three feasts I just mentioned to you, meaning the Feast of Trumpets, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot, Tabernacle, are all connected. They start on the, on, the, on the first of Tishri, then you have Yom Kippur on the 10th, and then Sukkot goes from the 15th, meaning the Feast of Tabernacles, from the 15th to the 21st. All right? 
Why is that important? Because the Feast of Sukkot is connected with crowns. During that feast, the high priest will wear a crown and the Jews will wear a crown. So the ten days precede the Feast of the Tabernacles where they are crowned. And we will talk more about the Feast of Tabernacles uh, later today. And so, for instance, in the book of Amos, chapter 5, we read, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. It is darkness and not light. So that is the day of trumpet because it's a, it's a dark day. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blasts and battle cry. That is taken from the prophet Zephaniah, chapter 1, verse 14 through 16. And um, if we check, for instance, Revelation chapter 6, if you go to the book of Revelation, chapter 6, we read the following. So, verse 12 specifically. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth, and the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by, as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is rolled up, and every mountain and island were re was removed from its place, and the kings of the earth and great men, and the generals and the rich and the strong, and everyone, slave and free, hid in the caves among the rocks of the mount mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, <clears throat> fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand before it? That is liturgical language that is connected to the day of awe. The day of trumpets. And interestingly enough, this is the sixth seal, and we'll have the seventh, and right after that, what do we get into? We get into the trumpets. The whole section dealing with trumpets. So it is the day of the Lord that will bring to completion what has been declared here. That's what I'd like to say tonight about the Feast of Trumpet. It is important to us liturgically because it plays a major role in the, in the book of Revelation. We will allude to it uh, when we get to that section in that book, but at least I wanted to give you an idea about its importance and the importance of the, the, the liturgical importance of the trumpets. Let's move on to Yom Kippur. Kippur is from the Hebrew word kafar. All right, and kafar really uh, means to cover, and from it we get the notion of atonement. So it is the day of atonement. It is the, or one of the most, if not the most important, the most important liturgical feast in the Jewish calendar. This is it. Not so much Passover, Yom Kippur. Why? Yom Kippur is the day of the year where the sins of the high priest, the sins of the priests, and the sins of the nation are forgiven. It is the Day of Atonement. Okay. It occurs on the 10th of Tishri, which is essentially 10 days after the Feast of Trumpets. So, typically when the Feast of Trumpets starts, it is really a preparation, a calling to the Great Day of Atonement. 
The Jews are reminded first of the judgment of God, of his awesome power, of him being the creator of all, that the books are open, and they're called to examine their conscience, so to speak, in preparation for the great day of atonement, Yom Kippur. Leviticus 17.11 requires the atonement of sins by blood. Let's go there quickly. Book of Leviticus. Remember that in the five books of Moses, Leviticus is the book written to the Levites, the priests. <clears throat> so in chapter 17, we read the following. Let's start with, with the beginning of chapter 17. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron and his sons, and to all the people of Israel, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. If any man of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp, or kills it outside the camp, and does not bring it to the door of the tent of meeting to offer it as a gift to the Lord before the tabernacle of the Lord, blood guilt shall be imputed to that man, he has shed blood, and that man shall be cut off from among his people. This is very important because this is the direction that God is giving his people and saying you henceforth will not be offering sacrifice on your own. You must, you must bring it to the tent of meaning, which if you recall is the first, it's the portable temple. And you must make your offering there. That's the only place you can offer it and only Levites will offer it on your behalf. That's the institution of the Levitical priesthood. This is to the end that the people of Israel may bring the sacrifices which they slay in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord, to the priest, at the door of the tent of meeting, and slay them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. And the priest shall sprinkle the blood on the altar of the Lord at the door of the tent of meeting, and burn the fat for a pleasing odor to the Lord, so, that the, so they shall no more slay the sacrifices for satire, satires after whom they play the harlot. This shall be statute for every, forever to them throughout the generation. And you shall say to them, any man of the house of Israel or of the strangers that sojourn among them who offer burnt offering sacrifice and does not bring it to the door of the tent of meaning to sacrifice it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from his people. And that's repeated again. And then in verse 14, for the life of every creature is the blood of it. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any creature, for the life of every creature is, is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. And every person that eats what dies of itself, or what is torn by beasts, whatever he, whether he is a native or a sojourner, shall wash his clothes and bathe himself, in, bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. So, so the point is that, I skipped the verse that I wanted really to read to you, which is 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by reason of life. So what is the understanding here? God is saying, you are sinners. And you cannot present yourself, in, you cannot come into my presence as sinners. In order for me to tolerate your presence, you have to make atonement for your sins. And the only thing that makes atonement for sins is life. And to the ancient, the, the, the life was in the blood. Alright? The life is in the blood. Hence, the blood makes atonement. 
So what you will do is that you will take a substitute. You will take an animal whom you will substitute for yourself. You will lay your sins on that animal. You will sacrifice that animal. You will take its blood and you will use that blood to sprinkle the horns of the altar, thereby shedding its life instead of yours. That's what's going on here. That's why it was very important for them that when an animal was sacrificed, that the throat was cut and the blood flowed in that cup and they captured that blood because that was the life of the animal and they used that to sprinkle the horns of the, of the, of the altar as a way to, to make reparation for sins. And that was the essential point that St. Paul was making in the letter to the Hebrews and the letter to the Galatians. And he said, if the blood of bulls and goats and rams was sufficient to atone for sins, why do we keep on doing it over and over and over and over? Clearly, it is not sufficient. It cannot atone for sins. Once and for all. That's precisely the point that St. Paul is making. Now, this day is a solemn day of the year, is the most solemn day of the year for the people of Israel, a day in which they will afflict their souls. That's the expression taken from Scripture. That means they are supposed to fast. It's a day of fasting. This was the only fast mandated by Scripture, and failure to observe it meant excommunication and even loss of life. On that day, every Israelite was requested to fast. So again, you see, fasting is not something we've invented. It is something that comes to us through Scripture and through the liturgy. Now, the only day when the high priest was permitted to enter the Holy of Holies. This was the day where the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies, the only day. Any other day, he would be killed. Why could he enter the Holy of Holies? Because it was a day of atonement. It was the day where he was to atone for his sins and the sins of the people. Now, let's understand precisely what it means to say that he's atoning for his sins and the sins of the people. It doesn't mean that he's atoning for personal sins that were committed knowingly. That's not the atonement we're talking about here. The atonement we're talking about is atonement through ignorance, or accident. That's why those sacrifices could not atone for personal sins done knowingly. For these, there was no remedy. Do you understand what I'm saying? This needs to really register. Because we live in a society where people think, well, you know, I can always go talk to God directly and He'll listen to me. You know, God is a God of love, therefore I just talk to Him and then, of course, He'll forgive me. No, not of course. Not, of course. We need to completely, completely understand that. Apart from Christ dying on the cross, you can talk all you want. Your sins will not be forgiven. Because what do you have to atone for sin? What do you have that could repair the injustice done to His Majesty? That's how they would speak to the majesty of God. What do you have to repair for the injustice that sin causes God's name? Nothing. You have nothing. 
So apart from the sacrifice of Christ on the cross and his death and resurrection and his priestly intercession, that's key. It's not enough for Christ to die and to raise. If that's all he did, and he did not present himself before the Father as a priest, we have nothing. That's why St. Paul says we have an, a priest who is continuously present before God in heaven. And it is the intercession of Jesus Christ on our behalf that gives value to our prayer. That's the only thing that gives value to our prayer. Nothing else does. You understand? But Jesus being generous doesn't keep everything for himself. He empowers others to act also as mediators. And most specifically his mother to whom he refuses nothing. So our prayers, even our personal prayers, are truly in a real sense, united to Mass. Without our prayers being united to Mass, they don't go to heaven. What allows our prayer to make it to heaven is the liturgy. It's the intercession. What is the liturgy? It is heaven on earth. It is the making presence, the priestly intercession of Christ in heaven on earth. That's what the liturgy is all about. This is what gives us life. And so even our personal prayer is in a fundamental sense attached to the intercession of the church. It is really us praying, in essence, to the church, asking the, the church to intercede on our behalf with Christ, and then Christ takes our prayer and presents it to the Father. That's how it works. This kind of weird notion of all I need just is to talk to Jesus is, is really... It's weird. It's certainly not biblical, anyhow. Now... The high priest was required, on that day, the high priest was required to wear white linen. Usually, he wore a colorful clothing. He would wear white linen, and he would have a number of other pieces on top of it, and finishing with the, a, a breastplate containing the 12 precious stones representing Israel. He would have a hat on his head, and then on it, there would be a golden plate on which it's, it's written, holy to the Lord, meaning consecrated to the Lord. And then he would also have little bells, right, so that he can be heard as he's doing the sacrifice. But on that day, he only wore white linen. And the clothes he wore on that day, he could never wear again. No, anyone else could ever wear again. He could only wear them that, that day. Now, he had to be, he had to be um, clean for him to present himself before the Lord. Any uncleanness, any uncleanliness was enough to prevent him from entering the Holy of Holies. So it is recalled, it recounted that at one point there was one rabbi who was talking to a Gentile, uh, one high priest, I'm sorry, talking to a Gentile right before the Day of Atonement. And as he was speaking to the Gentile, a, a, um, a, a saliva from that Gentile fell on his clothes. A little bit of saliva fell on his clothes. And that rendered him unclean. 
He could not enter the Holy of Holies. That was it. So, because of the importance of this, now, some of you may be, you know, shaking your heads, thinking, hmm. But the right way to look at it is, what does this, this uh, uh, cleansing, this ritual cleansing signify for us? What does it really signify? Well, the first thing that it signifies is the sinlessness of Christ. That Christ is absolutely without sin. The second thing it signifies is that without being, with any kind of sin on us, even the smallest venial sin, we cannot enter heaven. We cannot enter heaven. And the third thing it signifies is the importance for the priest and also for all of us to be in the state of grace when we enter the house of the Lord. This is what this signifies. And I wish, I only pray that Catholics could take these things half as seriously as the Jews took them back then. Because back then, it was a shadow of reality. It wasn't reality. Today, it is reality. It is reality. So that's why they always had the, the, uh, what they called the Sargon, or the captain of the temple, who was the assistant high priest, always ready in case the high priest became unclean, so that he could replace him, because it would be a complete disaster for the nation if the high priest was not able to enter the Holy of Holies because of uncleanness. That was the only day in the whole year where they could atone for their sins before the Lord. The only day. Yom Kippur. Yeah. And look at us. We can go to confession almost every Saturday and we go home. Yeah, I'll go next year. Whatever. By the way, this is why also in the church it just requires us to go to confession essentially once a year and receive communion once a year. It comes from here. Okay? Because the church will not do anything that contradicts Scripture and the church takes to heart all the teachings of Scripture. Even these that addresses the temple, because the church looks at them as the prototype, the model that we have to follow. There were additional burnt offerings were made, a bull, a ram, seven lambs for the people, and a ram for the priesthood. So a bull, a ram, seven lambs, and a ram for the priesthood. The high priest would leave his home one week before Yom Kippur to stay in the high priest's quarters inside the temple area. This is how important was for them that he be clean, they separated him from his wife, they separated him from his normal living quarters, and he was secluded and living, lived for those days in the temple, in the living quarters in the temple. And then, during this week, the high priest was twice sprinkled with the ashes of a dead heifer to circumvent the possibility that he had become ritually unclean through the touching of a dead body. It was a precautionary measure the, 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 the sprinkling with a dead heifer was the way to make someone who touched a dead body unclean become clean again. So they would do it anyhow, twice a day, to make sure he would remain clean. It's an animal. The high, in the morning, the high priest was required to immerse himself in a special golden bath. This was carried behind a large curtain, which revealed only the shadow of his movements to the public view. This assured that the procedure was followed faithfully. So he'd go out, there was a big laver in the court of the priests, and they would put a big curtain around him, and there would be men watching to make sure that he's actually taking a full bath. 
Right? Allah was riding on him being able to offer sacrifice. He would then robe himself with a golden garment and a purple robe hemmed with tiny golden bells. He then wore a golden breastplate with the twelve precious stones. After the morning sacrifice, so that was for the morning sacrifice, which is not part of the celebration of Yom Kippur. I told you that when he entered the Holy of Holies, he had to only wear white garments. But for the morning sacrifice, he wore his high priestly. He's no more high priestly robe. He would do that sacrifice. After he finished the morning sacrifice, guess what? Back to the bath. He bathed himself again. He would bathe himself five times. In the afternoon, which is the main focus of Yom Kippur, this is what would happen. Through this sacrifice, atonement was made for the sins of the priesthood and the people of Israel for the preceding year. So a young bull was sacrificed for the sins of the high priest and the priesthood. So this is how he would do it. They would bring the, the bull, and I'll spare you right now the details about where they would position. This one would be north of the altar, whereas the rams would be east of the altar. There's a lot of significance associated with it, but we're not going to get, I mean, currently my, my lectures are, are spanning an hour and a half, and I have to reduce them, otherwise it's getting out of hand. So I, I have to keep it short. So the, the high priest would then press his hands, his two hands on the bull as a sign of identification, with, with it and make a confession of his sin. So he basically he would go like this. You've seen this gesture before? Okay. This is what he does. And he presses his hands like this and he will make a confession of sin. Basically what this gesture meant was that I'm transferring my sins from me onto this animal. And then the animal will be sacrificed and his life will be for our sins. All right. So you notice often in our liturgy, the priest will actually impose the hands on the, on the host. Think about what that meant. Right? It's, it's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what the gesture came from. That's why they, the priest does that. Okay? But then it, it has also second significance, which is the coming of the Holy Spirit through the consecrated hands of the priest. That's the second significance of it. But one is precisely that I'm taking the, the sins of this community and I'm laying them on the only one who can actually make reparation for our sins and truly allow us to have the life of grace. That's what's going on in Mass. Now, three times during this confession, he would pronounce the holy name of God. As you know, the Jews were not allowed to pronounce the holy name of God. Actually, they could pronounce it, but they make it a rule never to pronounce the name of God lest someone might use it in vain against the first commandment just in case someone might use it in vain. So anyone who is here is still in the habit of using the name of the Lord in vain, you better stop right now. Because you're in big trouble. And then every time, each time the name was pronounced, the people and the priest would fall on their faces in worship and repeat, Blessed be his name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Blessed be his name, whose glorious kingdom is is forever and ever, from which we have the ending of the Our Father. All right? That's where, you know, the ending of the Our Father that we use these days, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever, ever, and ever, is not part of the Our Father. It was added to it. It comes from the, from the, from the, the, the celebration of the Yom Kippur. Okay? Next, the high priest chose by lot one of two goats. There were two goats on the east side of the altar, and he would choose by lot one of them. One would be sacrificed. So one is for Yahweh, one is for God, and the other one is for Azazel. And the one for, 
Azazel, the root word of Azazel is Azel, which means to escape. Right? To escape. Goat. Escape goat. Scapegoat. That's what it comes from. That's your scapegoat. Because one would be sacrificed and the other one would be pushed into the wilderness. It would literally escape. Alright? He would do the same thing. He would now lay his hands on the one for Yahweh and he was laying the sins of the people on that goat. Remember, it's the atonement of the priest, the high priest, the, the priests and the people. One is for the priest, one is for the people. Alright? And then the one that escaped, the scapegoat, had a crimson strip of wool tied to its horns. The high priest returns to the bull and presses his hands on it, confessing the sins of the priesthood. So the first time, he confessed his own sins. Then he went to the goat, confessed the sins of the people. Then he went back to the bull and confessed the sins of the priesthood. Three confessions. Now, the bull was then slaughtered and its blood collected in a golden bowl. Next, the high priest took a golden censer, filled it with live coals from the altar, and he took a handful of incense and placed them in the golden ladle. Using, so he's holding the censer and this golden ladle with incense. And using those two, he enters the Holy of Holies. And then, he pours this, the incense on the coals, and stand there and let the incense go up before the Holy of Holies. And there was the presence of God, the Shekinah. Then he would come out. So what did he do now? What did he do? He basically is expressing what? Prayer. Incense going up before God is the prayer of the people. So first he goes in and he's praying before God for atonement. And he goes out and takes the bowl containing the blood of the bull, goes back into the Holy of Holies, and using his two fingers, the, um, two fingers, he sprinkles once toward upward in front of the of the tabernacle, in, I'm sorry, in front of the Ark of the Covenant, once upward and seven times downward. All right. Now, you know, priests would walk around from time to time. I don't know if they still do it in Latin and white, but at least you've seen Father Nabil do that. He's having, there is a container with holy water, and he's using this interesting instrument. What does he do? He uses it as a whip, right? Well, that's exactly the same movement the, holy, the, the, the high priest did. Once up and seven times down. Why? Why one stop and seven times down? One stop, that's for God. Seven times down is for us. And why seven? The covenant. So the blood of the victim is now sprinkled before God, saying we have a victim that has shed its blood for the forgiveness of the sins of the people. And remember again, those are what we call the accidental sins. The sins committed through ignorance, or through, it, through, through accidents. Not personal sins. Okay? Not personal sins. Then he would go out, and he would take the blood from the goat, and he would do the same thing. Go back in the Holy of Holies, and sprinkle seven times. And then he would go back out, 
And now the scapegoat would be pushed into the wilderness, taken by a layman. In the time of Christ, there was not much wilderness around Jerusalem, and to make sure that the scapegoat would not go in, in, in inhabited areas, they would actually take it up to a cliff and push it down, and it would die. And here's the interesting thing. That, that piece of crimson wool would turn white. Would turn white. And then in the writings of the ancient rabbis, it is reported that after 40 AD, or after, we don't know exactly the period, but certainly after 40 AD, it stopped. It would never turn white. It stayed red. And they couldn't explain it. They couldn't explain it. Now, of course, typologically, all of that is pointing to Christ. The bull is pointing to Christ. The ram sacrifice is pointing to Christ. And the ram that is pushed by a layperson and possibly a non-Jew, of course, is Christ on the way to the cross, taken by the Romans to, Golgo to Golgotha, where he was sacrificed. All that is pointing, is pointing to Christ. All that was built for them to recognize the true Lamb of God with the, with the eyes of the Holy Spirit. And then once this is done, he would then go back. Yeah. And then as, as that other, the scapegoat was being sacrificed, the high priest completed the sacrifice and then addressed the people. Meaning that he read from Leviticus and probably gave a homily. And then he would close with the evening prayers. That was Yom Kippur. Right? So the, there are important elements here for us, for our study of the book of Revelation, is, of course, the importance of blood, and we will see blood in the book of Revelation, lots of it. The importance of the, the sacrifice, the importance of the censers and the altar, very important. All that is present in the book of Revelation without that background makes no sense. So for instance, um, just as an example, and I'll come back to it a little bit later, in Revelation chapter 7, the language, after this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. Hopefully by now the four corners of the earth is starting to register as the four corners of the altar. Okay? It's liturgical. It's not the four corners the way we would use the expression. Standing in the four corners. What does that mean? How could you stand in the four corners of the earth? Can you do that? The earth is round. You can't stand in the four corners of the earth. Right? But as an altar of sacrifice, you could. Right? Then I saw another angel ascend from the rising of the sun with a seal of the living God. Okay, and then um, chapter 8. And when the Lamb opened the seventh, seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven, angel, the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to mingle with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense rose with the prayers of the saints from the hand of the angel before God. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. Okay? So what does he do? He takes the censer before the golden altar. Which altar is that? Is that the outer altar? Is that the, 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 the altar of sacrifice in the temple? No. It's the altar of incense inside the temple before the Holy of Holies. Right? 
But notice what he says. He says, who stand, stood at the altar with a golden center, and he was given much incense to mingle with the praise of all the saints upon the golden altar before the throne. Before the throne. In a temple in Jerusalem, the altar of incense stood before what? The Holy of Holies. In heaven, it is before the throne. Okay, so what is the, the throne? It's the Holy of Holies. Alright? And he is then sensing. What is he doing? What is his angel doing? He's acting as what? As a priest. It's a priestly ministry of the angels in heaven. They are priests. You understand? And what did he mingle that incense with? The prayers of the saints. Let me ask you this question. If you're in heaven, God willing, when you're in heaven, when you're in heaven, do you need anything? Do you need Tide to wash your clothes? I don't work for Tide, by the way. Do you need a cell phone? Do you need to pay your mortgage? Do you need anything? What are you praying for? You're free of sin. You're in heaven. That's it. So anytime someone from a Protestant denomination comes and tells you, well, those in heaven, you know, they're in heaven. They don't hear us. How could you pray to them? How can you ask Mary to pray for you? She's in heaven anyhow. She doesn't hear you. You can say, baloney. Well, maybe not. But something to that effect. In a very charitable way. Why can they say that? And it's, you should expect them to say that because they have no liturgical background. They don't understand the liturgy. They do not see heaven as a liturgy. Alright? They don't see heaven as liturgical. Therefore, they don't see the communion of the saints. Their vision of heaven is warped. It's very partial. In fact, if you interrogate them on what heaven looks like, they will hard, be hard-pressed to describe anything about heaven. That's why the book of Revelation, as far as they're concerned, happens all here. It's futuristic. Because they miss the liturgy. But it's clearly liturgical, and the, the saints in heaven are interceding on our behalf, and their prayer is mingled with the incense. Why is it mingled? What's that mingling all about? What is the incense representing? We say the smell. Why do we say the smell of Christ? Because it is the prayer of Jesus Christ. That's what the incense represents. Why is it that it, when the priest comes with the censer and he incenses you, right? You bow. What are you bowing to? The cloud? Why are you bow? You, everybody bows. Why are you bowing to? You're bowing to Christ. This is the prayer. He's, he's calling down on the prayer of Jesus Christ. He is personal Christi. He's representing Christ. Here is on earth a representation of what is going in heaven as mass proceeds. What is happening here is happening in heaven. That's the power of Mass. We participate in that eternal liturgy when we come to Mass. We are in heaven. Heaven on earth. Sacramentally, this is the kingdom of God. We're present before the throne. What is happening in the book of Revelation, we're living it right now. Every Sunday. And because we are people, we are made of flesh and blood, and we believe through our senses 
God in his graciousness allows for a fallible man to stand in his place as Persona Christi, as Christ. And what the priest is doing here, Christ is doing in heaven. He's interceding on our behalf. And that incense is rising before the throne of God the Father, representing the prayer of Christ. And that's why we use, we use the most beautiful and the most um, pure perfume and incense. Because it represents the prayer of Christ. And that prayer is then what? Mingled with the prayers of the saints. So you see, your prayers is joined to that of Christ. And then it has its value before God the Father. Then it is acceptable to God the Father. Without his prayers, yours is not acceptable. Mine is not acceptable. You understand? That's what Mass does for you. It allows you to join your prayers with Christ's. Okay? And that's what's happening in heaven through the ministry of the angels. This is the book of Revelation. That's the meat of it. There's more to, of course, more to it than that, but that's the meat to it. Okay, now, let's move on and talk about the, the Feast of Tabernacle. This feast lasts for seven days. It's a seven-day feast. And it's called the, the Feast of Tabernacle or the Feast of Booth because this is the third pilgrim feast. This is a feast where Jews were required to go up to Jerusalem and, on a pilgrimage. And then when they get there, they had to live in booths, in leafy tents, as a reminder of the time when they were living in tents during the Exodus. That's the first reason. So they would go up there, and it is, this feast is a joyful feast. It is the feast that essentially closes the, uh, the harvest, and it's a feast that coincides with the beginning of the rainy season. Very few people know that Jerusalem receives as much rain as London. 20 inches a year. But the difference is that in London it drizzles almost all year round. Whereas in Jerusalem, it is from November to March. That's when the rain comes down. So this feast coincides with that period, the period of the beginning of the rainy season. And it is a prayer where the Jews go and address God and ask Him to bring down the rain. If you recall from the blessings of Deuteronomy and Leviticus, one of the blessings that in Deuteronomy uh, you know, 28 and Leviticus, no, 26 and Leviticus 28, God told them, if you, if you live by my commandments, I will bless you. And one of the blessings is what? Rain in its season. Rain in its season. And therefore they would go up to Jerusalem to entreat God for the rain in its season. And we call our conversation about the relationship between the temple in Jerusalem and the whole cosmos as a temple. So it isn't just a prayer where we can go to God and say, give us rain. It is a prayer that says, Lord, just as you have the liturgy in a temple, you also have the liturgy of seasons. You have the liturgy of nature. And so when we entreat you for, for uh, when we pray in a temple, we're also praying for the order in nature. Alright? Now, this, this particular feast commemorated God's present goodness and provision with the completion of the harvest, 
and then also God's future goodness with, them, with him providing them with water. Interestingly enough, the feast lasted for seven days. The first day and the day after tabernacle, the eighth day, that's the only feast where we speak of the eighth day. And if you've read St. Paul, you know how much importance he accords to the eighth day. Which eighth day? It's the day after tabernacle. That's the eighth day. Okay? There are considered sacred assemblies or Sabbaths. So even the eighth day is a Sabbath. Now, because of the joy associated with the Feast of Tabernacles, it became the most prominent feast in Israel. It's a joyful feast. So it became extremely important to the Israelites. And it was referred as the Holy Day by the ancient rabbis. It's a pilgrim feast. And there's a great number of sacrifices required. Each day, one goat, 14 lambs, two rams, and a number of bullocks, 13 the first day and decreasing by one every day, were offered in the temple. Each sacrifice is offered with its appropriate meal offering, flour and oil, and drink offering, wine. So it's a huge feast from that standpoint. All 24 divisions of priests participate during that uh, um, during that feast. You know, priests were divided into 24 divisions and they rotated in the service of the temple. For that feast, all 24 of them participated. Now, here's a very important fact for us. Very important. It was during that feast that Solomon dedicated the temple. This is the only time, really, where a priest king offered sacrifice. During the dedication of the temple, Solomon, who is not a Levite, because he's of the line of Judah, he's, a, he's, he's, he's of Judah, not of Levi, officiated as a high priest and offered sacrifice. It was during that feast. Hence, during that feast, we have what? We have a high priest wearing a crown. Keep that in mind, because this is going to be very, very important uh, for the meaning of that feast and its importance into the book of Revelation. What is the other import? It is during that feast that the Shekinah glory came down from heaven. So fire, right? It came down as fire by day. Fire came down from heaven during that feast. Now if you've read the book of Revelation, you know there's a whole series of events where fire is coming down from heaven. And all of it is related to that feast. Each morning in the temple, there was a water libation offered to the Lord, meaning it was a water offering. So what they did, shortly after dawn, the high priest was accompanied by a joyous procession of music and worship as to the pool of Siloam. You remember the pool of Siloam, don't you? Right. Well, he would come down in a procession to get water from that pool and bring it back up. At the same time, there was another procession that went down to... Um, south of Jerusalem, to a location known as Moza, where willows of the brook grew in great abundance. They gathered the long, thin willows and brought them back to the temple. They were placed on the sides of the altar so that they, they, the tops formed a canopy of drooping branches over the altar. Meanwhile, the high priest has reached the southern gate known as the water gate for that reason. As he entered, three blasts of silver trumpets sounded from the temple, and the priest with one voice repeated the words of Isaiah, 
Therefore, with joy will you draw from water from the wells of salvation. As the high priest poured out the water libation before the Lord, a drink offering of wine was simultaneously poured into the other basin. So there were two basins. He poured the water, and another priest poured out wine. Does this remind you of something? Pardon? Yeah, before the priest. Does this remind you of some important event? Cana, wine and water, yes. But there's one event where water and wine were poured. On the cross. When the side of Jesus was pierced, water and blood were poured. And then, three blasts of the silver trumpets immediately followed the pouring and signaled the start of the temple music. The choir of Levites, so you had 500 Levites with their choir, sang the Hallel. Psalm 113 to 118, I'm going to come back to 118. It's a very important psalm. It plays a big role here and in Revelation. At the same time, the priests with palm branches in hand marched around the altar. All right? Palm branch. Remember Palm Sunday? That's what it's connected to. Palms represented the coming of the Messiah. Now, let's stop and look at Psalm 118 and Revelation chapter 7. You will see how the, both of them are connected to this feast in a... In a I thought I had it. 118. <clears throat> it's a psalm of thanksgiving. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. So you have Israel and Aaron. Aaron is, of course, the house of priests. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. You can see how this can be sung, because it's repeated, right? Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. With the Lord on my side, I do not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side to help me. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They blazed like a fire of thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Hark, glad songs of victory in the tents of the righteous, tabernacle of the righteous, booth of the righteous. Okay? The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has chastened me sorely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. Which gate is he making reference to? Right? It is the gate to the temple. Gates are always connected with the temple. It isn't any, just any gate. He doesn't use that imagery in an empty way. The gate of the temple, right? I thank thee that thou hast answered me and has become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we beseech thee, O Lord. O Lord, we beseech thee, give us success. Blessed be he who enters in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. 
The Lord is God and He has given us light. Bind the festal procession with branches up to the horns of the altar. Thou art my God and I will give thanks to Thee. Thou art my God, I will extol Thee. O give thanks to the Lord for His good, for His steadfast love endures forever. You see how this is liturgical, right? We speak of the altar. Okay? And you see where we get the Hosanna. Hosanna is the name, blessed is who comes in the name of the Lord, which we say right, right before the Eucharist. Where are you getting that from? From that liturgy, from that procession, from those hymns. Now, if we go back to Revelation chapter 7, you notice the following. 7. Chapter 7. And give me a second, I'll tell you. Um, verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no man could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood round the throne and round the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So, they're dressed in white. Remember, the high priest would be dressed in white to enter the Holy of Holies. And they're all dressed in white and they're holding palm branches, the Feast of Tabernacle, and they're giving glory to God. Right? Incidentally, if you notice, uh, blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, might, be to our God forever and ever. Seven? Hmm. Okay. Now, now, the custom of carrying palm branches, we know, dates back at least to the Maccabees. The water ceremony was in use at least 100 years before the time of Jesus. And then there's a very important ceremony during the night called the, the lighting of the temple. Out in the court of uh, women, they would have four giant menorah containing four branches. And during the night, they will light those, they will light them up. And then there will be songs, and there will be prayers, and there will be celebration throughout the whole feast. Okay? And again, a choir of Levites with musical instruments sang the 15 Psalms of Degrees. The 15 Psalms of Degrees are Psalm 120 through 134, and every time they sang a psalm, they would descend one step, because before the Nicanor Gate, there were 15 steps. So they would stand on top, and they would go one step down every time. And this light celebration was reminiscent of the descent of the Shekinah glory, of the coming of the Holy Spirit in the night. Now, Guess what? During that feast, during that feast, what did the Lord say? He said the following. That's St. John. In St. John, chapter 8, verse 2, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And later he, and later he healed the blind man and repeated, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. They understood perfectly what he meant. Because those four menorahs represented the light of God. And here he is, coming right there and then saying, I am the light of the world. They immediately understood what he meant. On the seventh and final day of the feast, the temple service reaches climax. Rain was on everyone's mind. On this day, the trumpets gave three sets of seven blasts. Three sets of seven blasts. In the book of Revelation, we have seven blasts of trumpets. 
On this day, the priest made seven circuits around the altar singing the Hosanna verses. And the people waved palm branches. This was known as the Hoshana Rabbah, the great Hoshana. It was during this service, as the people were assembled, during that service, as they were assembled, and this is going on, there was a voice that interrupted the whole ceremony. And that voice was from a tall Galilean. And he said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Jesus said that. So essentially, Jesus is saying, I'm the answer to your prayer. You're praying for water. If you thirst, come to me. You need to see the statements of our Lord within the context of the life of the temple to understand the impact and the meaning they had on the people back then and why right after he said that, the high priest and the Pharisees got really angry with him and immediately a discussion broke among the Jews. They didn't say this guy is crazy. How could he interrupt the, 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 the liturgy? They were wondering, how could he be the Messiah? Isn't he from Galilee? Because they knew the Messiah was supposed to be from the line of Judah. They, couldn't, they didn't know he was born in, from the line of Judah. But they immediately understood what he meant. And that's how you have to look at it and say, alright, when you're faced with Christ, you have only two choices. You really have two choices. Either he is indeed the Son of God, or he's crazy. There's no other choice. Because for somebody to interrupt the divine liturgy, either he is the author of that liturgy and he can change it, or he's nuts. Now, let me show you how all of this illuminates some passages in Scripture which are very important to us. Hopefully I have some time to do that. Do I? Five minutes. That's going to be tough. All right. I will mention briefly to you Zechariah chapter 14. I don't have to cover it right now. Read Zechariah 14. Because Zechariah 14 gives a messianic meaning to the Feast of Tabernacles. So the living in the booth became, to the Jews, representative of Eden. And they had palm branches, myrtle, and uh, a third kind of branches all connected together, and they held a citrus fruit, representative, representative of the fruit of Eden. And to them, that was going, going back to Eden, to paradise. And the water flowing meant the river of Eden flowing and from which they could drink. Do you understand? And you see that in the book of Zechariah. Now I'm going to stop at one more uh, chapter in the, in the Gospels, which typically doesn't completely make sense without this background. You know this passage. It is um, in Matthew chapter 17. And after six days... Jesus took with him Peter and James and John with his brother and led them up a high mountain apart. And he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his garments became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking to, with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is well that we are here. If you wish, I will make three booths. Why is Peter talking about booths? The Lord is transfigured on the mountain. And what is he thinking about? He's thinking about tents. Apart from the Feast of Tabernacle, Peter's statement makes no sense. But in the context of the Feast of Tabernacle, it makes perfect sense. Jesus is transfigured. We're up on the mountain. It's the mountain. What is Jerusalem called? What is the court of the Gentile called? The mountain of the Lord. Here we are on the mountain of the Lord, and the light 
shines. He sees in Christ the fulfillment of tabernacle. And he says, it is well for us to be here. We are in paradise. Let's make three booths. You understand? If you really think about it, let me ask this question. What is easier for Catholics to remember? The Mass or Scripture? Why? Why is the Mass easier? Because it appears to your senses. You practice it. You see it day in day. I mean, Sunday after Sunday, hopefully. And you're participating in it. And you see it, right? No different for the Jews in the time of Jesus. What was easier for them? Scripture or the liturgy in the temple? The liturgy in the temple. So without the liturgy in the temple, which they make reference to all the time, it's very difficult for us right, to understand the background, especially the book of Revelation. So this is going to close this whole section on the temple. You can tell it's very short, but I can't do more if we are not going to, you know, because we have to move on. But I wanted to give you at least a taste and an understanding of the importance of those liturgies. So hopefully as you read through Scripture and as you move through them, you get to pick up on certain key words, the first fruits, the booths, the light, the water, and how they relate all liturgically to the temple and to the life of the church. Everything is liturgical. You cannot be Catholic if you're not liturgical. You cannot be in heaven if you're not liturgical. Heaven is a liturgy. And the liturgy is heavenly. It is given to us as a foreshadowing, a foretaste of heaven. So strive, strive to pray with your guardian angel so that you can be prepared for Mass. Come to Mass and apply yourself to see in Mass heaven. And during the week, live with Mass in your heart. So all in all, you're always living in heaven. For if you don't get the taste of heaven now, you won't get to appreciate it after you die. It's an acquired taste. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.